You may be seated. It is such an honor to be here again at First Church of Fairfield, Connecticut, in your pulpit, and to be here on a Sunday when I had the opportunity to be part of a baptism, especially for such a happy child as Sebastian, who I'm very happy to yield the pulpit to for a sermon if he so desires. But truly, it's an honor to be back here at this church and an invitee of your minister, the Reverend Vanessa Rose, uh, one of my most esteemed colleagues in the denomination and in this historic congregation of the United Church of Christ. Especially when a Gloria sets off the reading of the scripture, which is so fun. Now, here our scripture passage for this morning from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now, the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to divorce her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her to be his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had given birth to a son and named him Jesus. With this reading of the gospel according to Matthew, we are assured that Christmas is almost here. It is the final Sunday in Advent. All the cookies, I presume, are already baked, and the gifts are already wrapped and purchased, and all is well here in Fairfield County as we light this final candle of love. We have sung the Advent songs. We have reflected through peace, hope, and joy. We have done very well. We are ready for a new year. Glad tidings, everyone. There is nothing quite as charming as a Christmas in Connecticut, is there? As a nutmegger, or a Connecticut, not Connecticut, sorry, a Connecticut by choice, I certainly think this is true. My husband and I moved to Connecticut three and a half years ago for me to become the associate minister of Guilford's classic white clapboard church at the top of the green. Maybe some of you have seen Guilford, Connecticut's white church there. It's an image of Puritan perfection. It is literally now a photo back, uh, a Hollywood backdrop for all of these Christmas movies. I remember first seeing a glossy image of the church at Christmas on the front of their church profile, and I exclaimed to my husband, honey, I'm applying to be a minister in Whoville. Something they actually thought was quite wonderful. 
yes, consciously or subconsciously, we moved to Connecticut for Christmas in New England. Who wouldn't? I assume that's why you're all here too, right? Our state tourism bureau is well aware of this understanding about Connecticut and is currently running Facebook ads declaring Christmas movies filmed in Connecticut. Every holiday, networks like Hallmark, Lifetime, and the like play romantic sweet movies that make everyone fall in love with Christmas. This year, quite a few of those movies have recently been filmed here in Connecticut, no fewer than 19 capturing the magic of our small towns. I think the Tourism Bureau missed the magic of our cities as well, but that's just me. But especially after last week going to a really amazing evening at the Goodspeed Opera House in East Haddam, where they're currently turned the old film Christmas in Connecticut into a play, and they're doing a run of that through December, I was so excited to write a sermon about New England Christmas traditions. How uplifting and fun for the Sunday of love. So I did some research. And I found that the congregational church wasn't always a beacon of Christmas love and joy and tinsel. We had a change of heart during the Victorian era, it turns out. The real story of the Grinch that stole Christmas is the Puritans in New England that tried to steal Christmas. According to historians, and as reported by New England Living, the earliest law books of Massachusetts and Connecticut said things like the following. This is from Massachusetts. For preventing the disorder arising in several places within this jurisdiction, by reason of some still observing such festivals as were superstitiously kept in other countries, to the great disorder of dishonor of God and offense of others... It is therefore ordered by this court and the authority thereof, which, by the way, was the church, our church, and the state at the same time. They weren't separated in Connecticut until the early 19th century. That whoever shall be found observing any such day as Christmas or the like, either by forbearing of labor, feasting, or any other festivity upon such accounts as foresaid, every person so offending shall pay for every offense five shillings a fine to the county. Festive, weren't we? (laughs) And so it came to pass that our ancestors, the Puritans and separatists of this country, banned Christmas for nearly 200 years. New England Living goes on to say that bans like this would continue through the 18th and 19th centuries. The U.S. House of Representatives even convened on Christmas Day in 1902. 1802, excuse me. As Puritanism fell out of favor, Christmas was almost universally accepted in the U.S. in the 1840s and eventually became a national holiday in 1870. Recent history. Another another notable historian from the American uh, Antiquarian Society. Isn't that a fun name? American Antiquarian Society writes that as late as 1952... New Englanders were telling of their grandparents who were New England mill workers, risking losing their jobs if they arrived late for work on December 25th, and that sometimes the congregational factory owners would change the start time on Christmas Day to 5 a.m. or some other ungodly hour, so that anyone who dared want to go to church service would have to forego work and be dismissed, fired, for being late for work. 
It's awe-inspiring to me. It's the true story of the Grinch that stole Christmas and the change of heart. That the very churches, these village greens that Hollywood pines after for this New England quintessential image of Christmastide, our little towns of Connecticut made miniature for train sets right around the world. Lights and garlands and singing around the tree. These are the same churches and communities that literally banned the holiday for two centuries. The hope in it is that times change and places change and people are allowed to change too. Love is the theme for this Sunday. And it took our Puritan ancestors and their descendants well into the Second Great Awakening, nearly two centuries, to move from fear about Christmas to understanding its message of love. Friends, it's stories like this that give me hope, peace, joy, and love as a Christian minister. It's stories like this about our embodied history as congregations that helps restore my sense of hope of Jesus Emmanuel with us. The story of the UCC, our congregational churches in New England, has been the story of a Christmas miracle 200 years in the making. The same churches that repressed with Grinch-like determination Christmas evolved slowly into these grace-filled places of love that we know today. It is the story of how tending the fire of hope and of new thinking and embracing the guiding of the Holy Spirit, love can find a way to break through in even the most unlikely and unchangeable and stubborn of places. Love and Christmas break through in the end. If we made it through all that, then surely we can make it another 200 or 400 years into the changes of love needed for the future for Christmas in New England. In our scripture passage today, it says, When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had given birth to a son, and they named him Jesus. When Joseph awoke. When Joseph awoke has always stood out to me as a powerful moment in this story, a narrative shift. The author of Matthew didn't need to include this sentence in the writing. Joseph obviously awakes because the story goes on. But Joseph wakes up in the Matthew version of the story, and Jesus is born. He finds Jesus in his arms. When Joseph awoke, it was nearly Christmas. It was deep into Advent. When Joseph awoke, it was urgent. It was time to let go of the rest of the past and the issues and to re-resolve for the tasks ahead, the birth of Emmanuel. When Joseph awoke, the world was changing around him in ways that he could hardly grasp. What are we waking up to this year? What new awareness do we bring to this ongoing evolution of the church and human spirit. When Joseph awoke at Christmas, when you awoke, when we awoke to this season. Christmas in Connecticut has changed a lot since Puritan times. 
Our Victorian ancestors, like those who built this beautiful Tiffany window-filled church here in Fairfield, embraced Christmas wholeheartedly. This building comes from the Christmas era of the congregational tradition. As evidence within our own tradition, the scripture calls us to ask two really important questions as we awake with Joseph to Christmas on this Sunday of love. What are we waking up to this year? What new awareness do we bring to that evolution towards a more loving world? In a few minutes, led by Frank and the choir, we will sing together a most haunting and deep hymn. It is one of my very favorite hymns of all time because it is a dialogue. It is a conversation between hope and fear, despondency and vision, and between past and future. And it's at the intersection of a road. The hymn is Watcher Tell Us of the Night, and it's written based on a passage in Isaiah where at an intersection in a road, someone watching what's happening in Jerusalem encounters a traveler who doesn't know. It is the story of an awakening. It is the story of an awakening to change. Watcher Tell Us of the Night is, academically speaking, probably one of the best written, uh, structurally, hymns of Advent. It is taken between that dialogue between a traveler and the watcher, and it tells of mystery, hope, and the need to see beyond current darkness to a hope on the horizon of the future. Like Joseph in our Matthew text, it asks the question, what is it coming for us this Christmas? What is in store for us in 2023? Dare we ask? Watcher, tell us, please, what is to happen with this new dawn of a new year? Watcher, watcher, hi, you're here on the road with me. Tell us of the night. What signs of promise are? Is there any good news, watcher, out there in the night? Amidst all of this hate and violence? Traveler says the watcher. Traveler, oh, what a wondrous sight I've seen. See that glorious beaming star. See that star right up there? That beautiful new star? Don't you see it? It's a sign of hope. Traveler's not convinced. Watcher, I'm still not sure what this Christmas means, what this new year may bring. Does its bounteous rays news of joy foretell? There's fear in that line. You're going to hear it when we sing it. Basically, a new star wasn't necessarily a good sign. It could also be an omen in those years. So the, the, the traveler's asking the watcher, are you very sure this time that the star is a good thing? Basically, I've seen some bad moons on the rise the last couple of years. Are you sure this time the star is a sign of God's peace and love rather than another omen? Traveler, traveler, says the watcher, yes, yes, I am certain. This star is different. This star brings the day, the promised day of Israel. And with that in the dialogue, as you sing the rest of the hymn, after that moment, you see 
the traveler accept the watcher's word and then both move towards hope and peace and love and Christmas together. The story of this hymn is actually quite dramatic. It was written by a young and optimistic Unitarian, political reformer, scholar, politician, optimistic polyglot who spoke many languages named John Bowring. An interesting part of the story is John Bowring was prolific. He wrote many, many, many hymns, including this one, poetry, celebrating his optimism of a world of hope and peace. This is sort of in the fervor of early Unitarianism. And he wrote all of these things in his 30s when he was young. When he got older, he became a politician and he actually became governor of Hong Kong uh, and is credited with actually starting the Second Opium War. He became a very kind of pessimistic colonist along with a lot of his peers. So the sad part of the story is this hymn of optimism and hope was written in a time in his life when he carried all of the aspirations for change in the world, for political change, for spiritual change, for a new world. And by all accounts, he was, as he aged, he stopped writing these hymns and poems and kind of became a political functionary. By all accounts, he lost his optimism and zeal as he got older. I reflected a lot on that when I learned the meaning of this hymn. Now in my mid-30s, I'm becoming aware of the temptation of disillusionment. Have any of you been tempted by disillusionment in your careers, in the world? I was a minister seven years in local congregations through a pandemic. And now in Connecticut in my role with ADL as the associate director, I see all the hate and bias incidents. I'm the first one to triage them for across the state for different entities. How do we maintain our optimism in the face of what we're seeing? Some days, friends, we see all the data and we read the news and we hear what's going on. And it's hard to see that star, right? It's hard to see the star the watcher's telling us about. And this is why we need faith community. This is why we need church, First Church. I need you as one of your members to remind me to have courage. That is why we watch and tell of the glimmers of light we see every day. This is why this dialogue and this hymn matters. Sometimes on the road, and this is my thesis, so play, I know you might be asleep, but let's just come back for just a second. Sometimes on the road, we are the watchers. We're the ones who caught that vision for the day. We've seen a glimmer of love, whether it's helping with refugee families or it's something we saw with the luminaria down to the beach on a quiet walk. Sometimes we're the ones with the glimmers of God. We saw a God wink today, and we need to share that with our faith community. On other days, though, we are the travelers, aren't we? We're the ones just making it through and trying to absorb what we just heard on NPR Morning Edition before we're encountering new things. We're the ones that need the watcher to tell us about the good news and bring us along. In congregation, we are the watchers who look for the God winks and laughter and care, the baptism and the happy child singing into the microphone. We're the ones who get to tell the travelers how to find that hope, 
peace, joy, and love pathway to Christmas? How do all of us as caregivers, right, for the newborn Jesus, awaken to Christmas again with courage and hope? How do we avoid the disillusionment of aging and the saddened John Bowering? I believe in the Christmas miracle of the New England, Connecticut congregations of the United Church of Christ. And that the fact that we are here and happy and joyful and celebrating Christmas without ministers in the pulpit helps us to remember the hope we have for a world of change. This helps us from the devilishly tempting dual trap of disillusionment, which is a feeling of disappointment resulting from the discovery that something is not as good as one believed, disillusionment, and its clever twin, dismay, consternation and distress caused by something unexpected. Disillusionment and dismay have always plagued the travelers who are get overwhelmed in the data. We, First Church, are not a people of dismay and disillusionment. We have been awake with Joseph for eons, for over 200 years. The same churches and town greens and steeples that banned Christmas have now been the beacons and symbols of Christmas around the world. The same institutions, the same buildings where Christmas was banned are now literally the Hollywood backdrop symbols for Christmas villages here in Connecticut. If that doesn't give you hope, I don't know what else could. Watchers, my fellow Connecticans, not cans, congregation puritanical miracle people of 2023, are you ready to awaken to Christmas? Watchers, are you prepared to disallow dismay and disillusionment and to proclaim good news of hope and peace and joy again to your fellow travelers on this way? And if today you're a traveler, and maybe some of us are travelers today, right? And that's okay. In need of a sign of love, of hope, of peace, Receive, I hope, a word from your fellow travelers, your watchers, at this intersection of grace. Joseph, watchers, it's time to wake up. Jesus Emmanuel is born. Watcher, 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 we need to hear about it, watcher. Tell us of the night, for the morning seems to dawn. Traveler. Shadows take their flight. Doubt, disillusionment, dismay, and terror are withdrawn. Watcher, you may go your way, hasten to your quiet home. Traveler, traveler's now caught the vision. Traveler, oh my gosh, watcher, thank you. I rejoice today, for Emmanuel has come. Amen.